This morning we're going to continue Ecclesiastes. So let's review for a second. What's the big idea of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's true but tragic observation that everything under the sun, everything in this life is ultimately meaningless. So everything that this world cares about, like career and success and pleasure and money and fame and relationships, all of that is ultimately meaningless because it cannot satisfy you or make any lasting difference in this world. That, that is a, a hard reality that we need to hear because we are tempted to worship all of those things. Things like, like sex and money and pleasure and fame and career, those are not bad in and of themselves, but they become bad when we make idols of them. That's what an idol is. People think of an idol as a little statue of wood. No, no, no. An idol is simply a person or thing other than God that you turn to to find significance and satisfaction in life. Now, we're Christians, so we, we cling to God. We turn to God for significance and satisfaction, but most of us also turn to something else. We cling to something else in this world and try to also find meaning and satisfaction through that thing. And so God has given us the book of Ecclesiastes to crush our idols, to, to pulverize them, to destroy all the things of this world that we're tempted to find our meaning and satisfaction in so that we're left with nothing but God to trust in. That's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Destroy your idols so you have nothing but God to cling to in life, to find satisfaction and significance. It's a purifying book. So this morning we're going to tackle the first idol, the idol of wisdom. Let's start with a, a definition. Wisdom is very simple in the Bible. It simply means skillful living. You know how to make good choices that lead to good outcomes. You know how to navigate life successfully. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word wisdom and the word knowledge are used interchangeably. And in our culture, we could add a couple more words to that. Wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, education, they all mean roughly the same thing for the sake of the book of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, we're going to use all those words interchangeably. Changeably. Now, the basic idea, if you want to understand these words, if you want to understand the concept of wisdom, wisdom is not simply knowing facts. It is understanding how to use facts to your advantage. So the wise person is the person who doesn't just know how to calculate mathematical percentages. It's the person who knows that taking out a loan at 40% interest is a bad idea. That's wisdom. It's facts applied to life so you can live skillfully. Now, that is, a, is an idol that most of our world worships. We live in a world that lifts up, that reveres wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, education as, as a god. 
Now, Julie and I love a show called West Wing. It was written a long time ago by a guy named Aaron Sorkin. Really witty dialogue, really creative show. And there's a speech in it that's fairly well known that Aaron Sorkin wrote for a character named Sam Seaborn, played by Rob Lowe, where he talks about the value of education. He says, education is the silver bullet. Education is everything. Schools should be palaces. Competition for the best teachers should be fierce. They should be making six your salaries. Now, whether or not you agree with those policies, some of your teachers, you're thinking, yes, let's do that. Regardless of how you feel about the policy proposals, I want you to notice the idea, the principle there, what he's saying about education, about making people wise. It's everything. It's a silver bullet. What he means is that if we can make our citizens intelligent, that will solve all the problems that our nation faces. It's actually a belief that's shared by people on both sides of the political spectrum. You have President Obama saying things like, if we want America to lead in the 21st century, nothing is more important than giving everyone the best education possible. But then on the other side of the aisle, you have Jeb Bush saying, education is the great equalizer among humanity. Ben Carson saying, when you educate a man, you liberate a man. That, that belief in the value of education goes all the way back to the founding of our nation. George Washington said, the best means of forming a manly, virtuous, and happy people will be found in the right education of youth. So you educate people, you make them intelligent and wise, and that will make our world a better place, that will solve our problems. Is that true? Is wisdom, education, intelligence, knowledge, is that the silver bullet that will solve all the problems we face? Well, let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and see what it says about the value of wisdom and knowledge. And we'll begin with the good news. Solomon wants us to understand that wisdom really is a great tool in life. It's an incredibly useful tool that helps make your life work better. It really is better to be educated than not, to be wise than not. And Solomon gives us a few reasons in the book why it's better to pursue wisdom. The first reason is because wisdom helps you avoid pain. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 13. Solomon says, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And we'll pause there. Wisdom is better than foolishness, just like light is better than darkness. Both wisdom and light help you avoid pain. And as a father of young children, that's really easy to understand. Because most days of the week, my house is a minefield strewn with these tiny instruments of torture that we call Legos. Most people think of them as a children's toy. No, they're, they're relics of the Inquisition. You step on one of those in the middle of the night and you will confess anything. You are in such incredible pain. It's torture. So how do I avoid stepping on Legos? I turn on the lights. And in the light, I can avoid that pain. That's how wisdom works. It helps you avoid a lot of pain in life. That's really easy to understand. That's not a surprise. I I had a a guy that I knew growing up who thought it was fun to light firecrackers and throw them at people. That's a pretty foolish thing to do. Well, eventually he got caught with a short fuse and it went off right next to his ear. 
caused him an incredible amount of pain that he could have avoided by being wise. So wisdom is a great tool in life because it helps us avoid physical, financial, and relational pain. Second, it's a great tool because it helps us build wealth. Look at chapter 2, verse 26, the end of the chapter. Solomon says, for to a person who is good in his sight, that is God's sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon's point is that wisdom usually leads to financial prosperity. Those who are foolish usually end up collecting money, wealth, for those who are wise. That's generally true. Not always true. There are exceptions to that rule. But that's usually how life works. If you pursue an education, if you save your money, if you avoid foolish expenditures, you will probably end up with more wealth at the end of your life than if you don't do those things. Wisdom and education can lead to wealth. And Solomon gives us a really practical example. It's rather humorous, I think. Ecclesiastes 10.10, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. It's the old adage my grandpa used to tell me, work smarter, not harder. Use your brain, Blake, and then you can have success in life. It will lead you to be creative, to, to innovate, to solve problems, and that will lead to success. And that's easy to see. Just look at people like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, J.K. Rowling, who used their minds to create unimaginable wealth. They're billionaires, have crazy amounts of money because they use their minds. So wisdom can lead to financial success. It can build wealth. That's the second reason it's a great tool in life. Third reason it's a great tool in life, it helps us stay alive. Turn to chapter 7. A couple pages over, chapter 7. Verse 12, Solomon says, For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Wise people tend to live longer than foolish people. That's actually backed up by research. Recent studies conducted by the University of Colorado found that people who continued their education versus those who dropped out tend on average to live up to 10 years longer. Okay, so when we tell kids, stay in school so you can get a job, we should add, stay in school so you can get a job and not die. Because you'll get a whole nother decade of life if you get an education. Now that shouldn't surprise us. People who make wise decisions are going to tend to avoid behaviors that shorten life. So wise people listen to their doctors and and don't do things like, like smoking that can end your life early. Wise people avoid risky behaviors like, like doing drugs or, or base jumping. I, I do not understand this hobby at all. B- jumping off a building, I don't, that guy's wearing a helmet and we're laughing. Why do you wear a helmet if you're jumping off a building? Because it's either going to work or not. <laughs> and the helmet isn't going to make any difference to you. Base jumping is incredibly risky. That's why it's illegal everywhere in our country. And a lot of the guys who actually founded this sport are now dead. Because it is such an incredibly risky behavior. You do foolish things like that and your life isn't going to last long. 
So wisdom is a great tool. It's a useful tool because it helps us avoid pain and build wealth and live longer. It's an incredible tool. And so I just want to have this moment where I tell all the students in this room that God wants you to stay in school. I know this sermon is about to take a turn for the worst. Please do not use that as an excuse to drop out. You need to be educated. You should pursue knowledge and intelligence and wisdom. Those are good things. Those are good tools in life. Wisdom is a great tool, but it's a lousy God. It is a lousy God if you put your faith in your intellect, in your wisdom, in your education. It will leave you disappointed and empty. No, education and wisdom are not the silver bullet that our society thinks they are. They're not the solution to all our problems. They will leave us as empty as any of the other idols of this world. And Solomon gives us four reasons for that. Why is wisdom such a a lousy God? Well, the first reason is because it's limited. So while we're in chapter 7, let's look a little further down, verse 23. Solomon says, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Now, who's the guy saying this? It's Solomon, who other than Jesus is the wisest person to ever live. The Bible tells us that. God gave him the gift of being the wisest person other than God in the flesh to ever inhabit this planet. And yet he is saying that knowing all things is impossible. Life under the sun remains mysterious to us. There's so much that we cannot decipher, that we cannot figure out. So wisdom is limited in its scope. We cannot understand all things, and it's limited in its effect, what it can accomplish. Solomon tells us in chapter 1, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task, which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is What is lacking cannot be counted. His point is that even with all the wisdom in the world, we cannot fix the problems that really matter. Yeah, we can send a person to the moon and we can generate electricity from the wind, but we can't fix the problems that really bother you, like ending violence and war and greed and racism. You cannot fix those problems. They are insolvable for anyone but God himself. And so even if you had all wisdom, it still cannot accomplish all things because it is limited. It's the first reason it makes a lousy God. Our wisdom, our intellect, it is limited. Second reason, our wisdom is corruptible. Turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, look at verse 8. Solomon says, also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. It's really weird to have those two verses next to each other. Because verse 8 isn't good. 
You may not know that. Verse 8 is bad because Solomon knew the law. The, the book of Deuteronomy, he knew that God had given commands about how future kings in Israel should act. And God said explicitly, the king shall not multiply wives or women for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. But that's exactly what Solomon said he just did. And so how in verse 9 can he say that my wisdom stood by me? Well, he is proving that our wisdom is corruptible. Like every other part of our humanity, it is broken by sin. And it can be corrupted to bad ends. And that's what Solomon did. Look with me back at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon says to myself, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold it to his futility. I will test myself. He's running an experiment. I can just imagine what's going through his head. Yeah, I know that stuff is bad, but I'm the wisest person to ever live. So really, it's good for me to test everything and see what comes of it. That's a pathetic excuse for sin. And yet before I judge Solomon too harshly, I better recognize I do the same thing, and so do you. We use our minds, our intellect, our wisdom to excuse our sin. So there's that movie that you know you should not see. But your friends invite you and one of them's not a believer and you know God wants you to witness to them and it would be rude not to go. And so you have to go, right? That's a reasonable thing to do. You own a business, you're not doing very well, but a client comes to you, you know he could turn things around. The only problem is he expects a kickback under the table. Now you know that's not strictly legal, but Steve, your employee, is counting on you and he has a wife and kids and you'll have to let him go if this guy doesn't come through. And so it's just rational, it's just logical to give the bribe. There's that behavior that you know is sinful, but it will relieve your stress if just for a few minutes, and you know, yeah, it's a little bit addictive and it's a little bit destructive, but it's not that big a deal and lots of people do it. And so who really cares? It's just the logical thing to do, right? We are so good at using our minds, our wisdom, our God-given intellect to excuse the sinful behavior we want to participate in. So wisdom is corruptible. It can be used to bad ends. Actually, your mind can become your partner in crime, excusing whatever you want to do. Our wisdom is limited and our wisdom is corruptible. Third problem with our minds, with our intellect. Our wisdom cannot eliminate pain. Chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This is the flip side of what we said earlier. Wisdom can help you avoid some forms of pain in life. But flip side, it can actually increase other forms of pain. I was driving down the highway with my kids a couple months ago. And we live in the south part of town. So we're driving into College Station and we pass the silk stocking. And my kids asked the question that I knew someday they were going to ask, and I did not want to answer. Daddy, what's in there? What do you say? What's the true answer? In that building, children, is pain. Pain for the women who perform. Because you think any little girl grew up wanting to be a stripper? Pain for the customers who go there. Because you think any man ever left that place feeling good about himself? That is a place full of pain, but I don't want to tell my kids that because I don't want to burden them with that knowledge. I want them to remain innocent of evil. 
I wish my kids could go through life never knowing what phrases like strip club or genocide or racism mean. Knowledge can be a curse because the more you know, the more pain and suffering you see. Wisdom makes a lousy God because it can't eliminate pain. Instead, it actually can increase it. Fourth and final reason why wisdom is a lousy God, because it cannot overcome death. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 14. We read the first part of this verse earlier. Now let's finish it. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance in the wise, of the wise man as with the fool, and as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. We said on a, a little while ago that wisdom can extend your life. That's true, but it cannot prolong your life forever. The fool and the wise man alike will die at some point. Base jumper and the person who doesn't base jump. You're both going to die at some point. You cannot avoid death. Wisdom cannot overcome death. Billy Joel made a point of that. Sometimes the good die young. Sometimes it's the good people who actually die earlier than the bad people because this world we live in is broken. We had proof of that two weeks ago. A guy from our church, Sean Campbell, what a great guy. He was a Christian and an Aggie and a Marine and a father and a husband, a wonderful man who dies in a freak helicopter accident. There's no rhyme. There's no reason to that. That's just life in a broken world. Doesn't matter how wise you are, you cannot overcome death. And when death finds you, Solomon goes on to say, when death finds you, you're going to be forgotten. Here's a picture I found on the internet, man from the 1800s. Who is that guy? I don't know. There was no name. There's no story. No information. Just a random picture someone found, I guess, in a for sale shop somewhere. So was he wise or was he a fool? No one knows. No one remembers. He's completely forgotten to the human race. That will be true of 99.99999% of us within 50 years of our death. We will be completely forgotten to the human race. No one will know whether you were wise or whether you were a fool. Death will wipe the slate clean. So wisdom, it's a great tool, but it is a lousy God. If you put your faith in wisdom, if you trust your wisdom to make your life work, to give you significance and meaning and satisfaction, it will leave you as empty and dissatisfied as Solomon. Because wisdom is limited and corruptible and it cannot eliminate pain or overcome death. That's a a lesson that I have had to learn personally in life. Sometimes people tell me that a particular sermon I gave, it felt like I was speaking directly to them. Like they'll come up afterwards and say like, do you know what I, I, I went through this week? You were just talking directly to me. Were you trying to do that? The answer is always no. I have really bad eyesight, so I can't actually even see to the back. I don't know who's here. So I'm, I'm never talking to individuals. But sometimes it feels that way. And what's weird about this sermon is it feels that way to me. I'm the one who this sermon is about. This is to me personally. Growing up, I was always known as a smart kid in class. And I took a lot of pride in that. 
That made me feel valuable and special. I certainly wasn't feeling valuable about my athletics or my looks or anything like that. I began to take pride in my intellect. I felt good when teachers said good things about my grades. I began to find significance in that. And so from an early age, my intellect became an idol to me. Now, I didn't know that. I was too young to understand that. But here I am, a a Christian kid. I grew up in a Christian home. And so I'm clinging to God, but I'm also clinging to my intellect, my wisdom, my knowledge, my mind to find significance, to find value. I, I came to believe that my mind was my ticket to the good life. That's what will make my life work. Well, that all seemed to work well for me until I got older and my mind didn't work as well as it used to. God allowed me to struggle in two areas. For me, different people struggle in different ways. For me, it's doubt and depression. Those are just a normal part of of my life, my personality, my brain. That's what happens in my mind. So doubt hit me starting in high school. I started to wrestle with doubt deeply over whether God exists, and that has never left me. So on any given day, I wake up, and is it going to be a good day? Is it going to be a bad day? I don't know. Will it be easy to believe in God today, or will it be hard? It's variable, up and down, because I wrestle with doubt all the time. Depression set in a little later in life, as it often does. I found that I couldn't think clearly anymore. I couldn't carry on normal conversations with people. I couldn't plan optimistically about my future. I could barely get out of bed in the morning. It was like my mind was broken. And what was so hard was that there was nothing I could do with my brain to fix either of those problems. I couldn't go memorize more scripture, read more theology to drive the doubt away. I couldn't fix depression by adding facts to my knowledge base. These weren't intellectual problems. And so going through doubt and depression has been the most painful thing I've ever faced in life. And and let me explain what I mean by that. I have other ailments. Uh, My right eye doesn't work. That's why my eyesight's so bad. Um, I have scoliosis in my back. Both of those are, are kind of a pain, but neither of them really bother me deep down. They don't affect me deeply. They don't crush me. Why? Well, because I was never tempted to make an idol out of my eyesight or the straightness of my back. Those things don't affect my self-image, my significance, my sense of meaning and satisfaction. So when God took those away, it wasn't that big a deal. But when he broke my brain, that was devastating because this is my idol. This is what I count on. And so when this stopped working like I expected it to work, it was incredibly painful for me. I remember telling a friend when I was the deepest, darkest town in this pit of depression, I told him, I just wish God had broken my arm because that would be so much less painful than breaking my mind. Because this is where I find my meaning, my significance, my value in life, and he's taken it away. But he knew for me that's what had to happen. Because this had become an idol that I put on par with him. I could never follow God fully. I could never trust in God completely so long as I clung to my intellect, my wisdom to give me value and significance and meaning in life. God had to crush this idol so that I could finally get to the point of humility where I recognized this can only take me so far. It will never give me the significance and satisfaction I crave in life. 
It was only through pain that God helped me to finally understand. My wisdom, my intellect, my education. A great tool, but a lousy God. And so that leaves us with a very, very practical question this morning. How do we grow our wisdom? Because we know we should. We know we should get an education. We know we should learn. We know we should develop our minds. How do we grow our wisdom without worshiping our wisdom? How do we grow our minds without making an idol of our minds? Well, the answer to that question and really every question in the book of Ecclesiastes is at the end of the book. So every week, we're going to land in the same place. Turn to the end of the book, chapter 12. The answer to every problem in the book of Ecclesiastes is the end of chapter 12. Look with me, chapter 12, starting in verse 11. This is no longer Solomon speaking. This is now the narrator who came along later and collected Solomon's very sad writing and then added a hopeful conclusion on the end. Verse 11 The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. That's the good news. Wisdom, it it can be like a goad in your life that moves you in a good and positive direction. But bad news, verse 12, but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. If you devote your life to pursuing wisdom and education, if that is your God, if that is your ultimate source of satisfaction, it will leave you as weary and empty as Solomon. So, what is the solution? Next verse, verse 13 and 14, the conclusion, when all has been heard is... Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the point that the narrator makes that God wants us to understand the answer to the question, how do we grow wisdom without worshiping wisdom? First and foremost, we make our first priority in life to trust and obey the one beyond the Son. The one whose wisdom transcends this planet, the creator of all wisdom, you trust and obey him first and foremost in life. That's what matters most. That's what you put first. We need to hear that because we live in a highly intellectual town, town full of, of doctorates and professors and brilliant research. We need to understand, don't miss this, we need to understand that in God's economy, trust And obedience is more valuable to him than wisdom or intellect. So who is it that pleases God? The PhD with a Nobel Prize who occasionally gives God a Sunday when it's convenient. Or the high school dropout who has learned to fully trust God and obey God through the trials of life. It's the second. Because what God is looking for is trust and obedience. And so as you look at your life, as you think about how you can walk with God in this highly intellectual community that we live in, we need to trust and obey. First and foremost, no matter what, we trust and obey. So let's begin with trust. Trust the one beyond the sun. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And here is Paul's point. You live in a world that is trying to find salvation through wisdom, salvation through education, salvation through intellect. And Paul's point is that is foolishness. You are doomed if you think your mind is going to deliver you from pain and suffering and death. Now, the only way to find salvation is to embrace foolishness. The message of the cross, it is foolishness to this world. Why? Because the message of the cross begins with an admission of failure. That's the basic idea of the gospel. It begins with an admission that you have failed so completely and so utterly that the only hope for you was for God to take on flesh and die in your place and rise from the dead. The gospel begins with an admission of our complete failure and the world will never accept that. Never That's too humbling, that's too humiliating to admit that you can offer nothing to God, that you cannot save yourself. But if you want to be saved, if you want to find life and significance and value and satisfaction, you must let go of your worldly wisdom and humble yourself before God. You must embrace the foolishness of the cross. Now, if that's something that that you just can't do, if you just cannot get yourself to believe something as ridiculous as Jesus being God and dying and rising from the dead, if it's just too hard for you to believe that this book is true and that God exists and that Jesus is the only way to know him, I want to plead with you to come talk to me. So I have wrestled with every doubt that's going through your mind right now. All the negative evidence, come talk to me. I've been there. Let's talk about it. I want to I plead with you to be willing to recognize that you have made an idol out of your intellect, out of your mind, and as long as you are worshiping and exalting your mind and your intellect, you are going to find yourself as empty and unsatisfied as the wisest man who ever lived. Your only hope is to bow the knee before your creator and say, I failed. So I'm going to trust in you. True wisdom, true life begins by trusting the one beyond the sun. But it doesn't end there. For those of us who have trusted in God through Jesus, it goes on. The second thing, the thing that dominates the rest of our lives is we need to obey the one beyond the sun. Now that we believe, now we need to obey James tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. How different this wisdom is than Solomon's wisdom. Solomon tried to display his wisdom to the world through wealth and splendor and success. This wisdom displays itself to the world through gentle behavior that is good. And in the book of James, what that's talking about is behavior that is obedient to the word of God. 
If you want to show the world that you are wise, there is only one way to do it, through obedience. And notice that James doesn't give us any caveats here. He does not say, obey unless you know better. Obey unless it feels foolish. Obey unless people will think you're a bigot or unkind. No, he just says obey. That's it. Just obey. There is never an excuse for sin. The right answer is always obedience. And so I want to challenge you. Is there some area in your life where you have allowed your mind, your intellect, your wisdom to create excuses for sin? We all do it. If you're there, we are too. I want you to acknowledge that and I want you to take this opportunity to repent of that, to admit to God that's not okay. I was saying it was okay. I came up with lots of reasons to justify that behavior. It's not okay. You said it's not okay, so it's not. So I want you to admit that that behavior is wrong and I want you to turn to God and say, God, please deliver me from that sin. Please humble me and bring me to yourself and help me to no longer give in to that sin. That's what our lives as believers should look like, continually turning to God in repentance and saying, God, please humble my mind. Make me willing to trust and obey you in every area of life. That's the only way to find the significance and the meaning that you crave. Only find it through trust and obedience. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are a God of infinite wisdom. Nothing is a mystery to you. You are the God who understands all things. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know this world better than we will ever comprehend it. You are the God of all knowledge, all wisdom, all truth. We thank you, Father, that in your grace you have revealed so much truth to us. You have blessed us with so much light and yet we confess there's so much we still don't understand. There's so much that we wrestle with. And so, Father, I pray, help us to humble ourselves before you. When our wisdom, when our knowledge, when our intellect comes face to face with something in your word that we don't understand, that we object to, that we don't like, I pray that you would break our minds, that you would do whatever it takes to humble us before you so that we will simply trust and obey. Father, you are the only way. Significance and meaning that we crave can only be found in you. I pray for any person in this room that's trying to find it elsewhere that you would humble them, that you would break them, that you would do whatever is required so that they turn to you alone to find the meaning and satisfaction that they crave. You're so good to us, God. Thank you for the gift of your son who's made it possible for us to know you, who, as Paul says, has become our wisdom that in Jesus we might truly be wise and have life. We thank you for him, and in his name we pray. Amen. All right, next week we'll talk about the idol of money. I'll see you guys then.